Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like... You know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com It was the biggest TV interview of the century. 25 years ago this month, Princess Diana, the estranged wife of the future king, went on camera and blasted her husband and his exalted family. For the queen, it was the final straw, and she thought, we've just got to finish this. And so she wrote to both Diana and to Charles, saying that, really, it's time to end this, and you two have got to get divorced. The nation was agog as the princess revealed all on the BBC's flagship current affairs programme, Panorama. But had the interview that transfixed the nation been secured with underhand tactics? It said there's this 25-year scandal that has never been broken at the BBC, that a whole bunch of people have been involved in covering up, and it's astonishing that it has never come out. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, the Diana interview and the alleged BBC cover-up. Diana and Charles, oh my goodness, it was, people call it a soap opera. It's much more dramatic and colourful than any soap opera. That's Valentine Lowe, the Times royal correspondent. In 1995, he was a reporter on the London Evening Standard and well aware of the ongoing story of the catastrophic marriage between the Queen's eldest son and his charismatic wife. A marriage that had begun festooned in hyperbole 14 years earlier in 1981 at St Paul's Cathedral. I, Charles Philip Arthur George. I, Charles Philip Arthur George. Take thee, Diana Francis. Take thee, Diana Francis. To my wedded wife. 
my wedded wife. You started off with this marriage, and people talk about the awful cliche of it being a fairy tale marriage. A kiss, which receives a roar of approval from the crowd, who call the couple back and back again onto the balcony. They appear to be in love, despite Charles saying, "Whatever love is." <laughs> and I suppose in love. Of course. <laughs> Whatever in love means. <laughs> Well, it obviously, means, uh, obviously means two very happy people. Then quickly, the marriage unravels and Diana's unhappiness becomes apparent. The unfaithfulness of Charles and Diana starts to leak out. When they would go on tour, and you could just see on their faces how unhappy they were in each other's company. And then the split, it was dynamite stuff and there'd be leaks and some of the things that you'd come out even looking back on it now with the passage of time it's hard to believe that some of the stuff that came out the leaked telephone calls recordings of first diana talking to one of her lovers in the most intimate terms and being quite a abrasive and rude about the royal family and then charles talking to camilla in in embarrassing, cringing terms that still make me wince to listen to them today. When those stories first started to emerge and they were anonymous, a lot of us thought the tabloids were making them up. To outsiders, the tabloid rat pack were a species held in great contempt by the sort of bien-pensant of our age, uh, sort of Guardian readers. They'd run all this stuff about the awful state of Charles and Diana's marriage. And people would deride a lot of this stuff, thought it was all tabloid nonsense. And then what happens? Andrew Morton's book comes out. In 1992, biographer Andrew Morton published a book about Princess Diana, Diana, her true story. The book's contents were dismissed as gossip until it became clear that it was Diana herself who was the direct source of the revelations. What she used to do, she had a friend called James Colthurst, and he would go and have lunch with her, armed with a tape recorder and a list of questions from Andrew Morton. And they'd chat over lunch, and then he'd go away on his bicycle and deliver the tape recorder to Andrew Morton, who'd type it all up. What was the picture she painted of her marriage and of the royal family to Andrew Morton? Charles didn't understand her. Charles was cruel towards her. The marriage was a sham. He'd been unfaithful from the start with Camilla. And the royal family were these cold institution, these cold, unfeeling Windsors who didn't understand her and didn't give her any support. And then Jonathan Dimbleby interviews Charles for television, for ITV, and Charles is persuaded to admit adultery. Did you try to be faithful and honourable to your wife when you took on the vow of marriage? Yes, absolutely. And you were? Yes. Until it became irretrievably broken down. Us both having tried. Everyone knows he'd been unfaithful with Camilla, but for him to admit it, was explosive. It was the heir to the throne admitting that he had broken his marriage vows. It was an absolute bombshell. To the public, of course, this is the most intense psychodrama. The fairydale princess has now become the cheated upon. He's trying to redress the balance. And then it seems that she decided, well, 
if he can do that, I should do that. Is that how it goes? Yes, I think so. I think she saw the power of television. She saw how she could be listened to and her voice could be heard without any filters. Now, a lot of people advised her against doing it, which is why she went behind everyone's back. She went behind the back of her staff, her closest advisors, press secretary, her private secretary, and neither of them were told. She didn't tell even her closest friends, people like Rosa Monkton, very, very close friends. Instead, she smuggled in the Panorama crew into Kensington Palace. And Buckingham Palace hadn't been told. The first that Buckingham Palace knew anything about it was six days before. Uh, and they, of course, were furious. So one November evening in 1995, Diana sits down with Martin Bashir, a panorama reporter but not a household name, and heavens does she deliver. Boy, she had a lot to say about the royal family and chiefly about her husband. Withering stuff. One of the most memorable bits is when she said that she thought that Charles was not fit to be king. Do you think he would wish to be king? There was always conflict on that subject with him when we discussed it. And I understood that conflict because it's a very demanding role, being Prince of Wales, but it's equally a more demanding role, being king. And being Prince of Wales produces more freedom now and being king would be a little bit more suffocating. And because I know the character, I would think that the top job, as I call it, would bring enormous limitations to him. And I don't know whether he could adapt to that. It was that remark that section of the interview which really drove a wedge between Diana and the rest of the royal family. Even people who were sympathetic to her, like Princess Margaret, who was quite friendly to Diana, were absolutely furious about what she said about Charles and his fitness to be king. Do you think Mrs Parker Bowles was a factor in the breakdown of your marriage? Well, there were three of us in this marriage, so it was a bit crowded. It's it's rather overlooked now because people look at the, there were three in that marriage and so on, and forget that she effectively said that the man who was going to be king and who she was married to shouldn't be. It was also very carefully lit, wasn't it? And she looked into the camera in a particular way. Oh, yeah. She had a lot of makeup on, didn't she? She had big hair and her eyes were heavily rimmed with coal. Extraordinary looking when you look back on it, she she was playing a role. She wanted to be both victim and a strong figure. I think every strong woman in history has had to walk down a similar path. And I think it's the strength that causes the confusion and the fear. Why is she strong? Where does she get it from? Where is she taking it? Where is she going to use it? The viewing figures were huge. 23 million people watched Diana that night and just about everyone saw clips of the interview on the news. You'd have to have been living without electricity on the outermost of the Outer Hebrides to miss it. Sensation doesn't get close. It was absolutely huge. And a lot of people thought she'd made a mistake. For Diana fans, for the converted, it convinced them of the rightness of her cause and the evilness of Prince Charles and the rest of the royal family. And for the Queen, it was the final straw and she thought we'd just got to finish this and so she wrote to 
both Diana and to Charles saying that really it's time to end this and you two have got to get divorced, which indeed is what happened. And how old were William and Harry at this point? William and Harry were 13 and 11. For what one knows, they were incredibly upset by this, not least by their mother's admission of adultery. In the interview, Diana confessed her extramarital affair with Army Captain James Hewitt. Did your relationship go beyond a close friendship? Yes, it did. Yes. Were you unfaithful? Yes, I adored him. Yes, I was in love with him. But I was very let down. I've heard tell that William didn't speak to his mother for several days afterwards. Really? Yeah. She later told her friend Rosa Monkton, the week before Diana died, they had a holiday in Greece on a boat, she told Rosa Monkton that she regretted doing the interview because of the effect on the children. So, the BBC had scooped with the interview of the century. The trouble is that there's a but... Had some dirty tactics been used to get the interview? And if so, were they covered up at the time? Last Saturday, it was 25 years to the day since the interview was aired, the 14th of November, 1995. I'm Rosamond Irwin, and I am the media and technology correspondent with the Sunday Times. Rosamond's beat, as you've just heard, is media in this country and abroad. I can't say I'm somebody who really follows royal stories, and that isn't the way I actually see this story. Obviously, it has a royal at the centre, and at that time, the world's most famous woman. But I see this as a media story. And a few months ago, as the quarter-century anniversary of the interview approached, Rosamond noticed that a dog was not barking in the night. What immediately struck me as odd is that we had this 25th anniversary, and... The BBC was the one broadcaster not doing some big event around it. Channel 5 was doing a documentary, Channel 4 was doing a documentary, and so was ITV. And I thought, why on earth isn't the BBC doing one? But then... Right at the start of September, I received an email from a whistleblower at the BBC. And obviously this email had some suggestions of why that might be. This whistleblower wasn't the most communicative... All they did was they sent me an email and then they immediately shut down that email account. Wow. So we had this email to go on and nothing more. But they did know their stuff because I could then use their frame and go through it line by line and then actually take it on way further than anything they gave us. But gave Rosamond a chance to investigate the story about an alleged BBC cover-up over the circumstances in which Panorama had collared the famous Diana interview. I had no way of proving anything that they were telling me was true. I clearly had to go to an awful lot of other sources. At that stage, I was just reading an email that seemed fascinating and bizarre. And I thought, how can this possibly be true and, and it not have come out over the years? And of course, actually, it turns out bits of it had come out, but the story had always got stuck. So what did the email actually say and what did you do with it? Well, I remember forwarding it to my editor... It said there's this 25-year scandal that has never been broken at the BBC that a whole bunch of people have been involved in covering up and it's astonishing that it has never come out. What did they say had been covered up? What was there for you to begin to work on? So they said that the issue with 
the way the interview had been got, that was the problem. And they said, essentially, that Martin Bashir had deployed dodgy tactics in order to get this interview. And that involved fake bank statements. And that no one had ever quite got the full implications of that. And that essentially the BBC had closed ranks. We now need some context of what was happening at the BBC at the time. The Diana interview, as Valentine was explaining earlier, was simply sensational. The BBC got the scoop by Martin Bashir, the Panorama reporter. In 1995, the long-serving chairman of the BBC was a man called Marmaduke Hussey, educated rugby in Trinity College, Oxford, grenadier guards, lost a leg at Anzio, managing director at Times Newspapers, and connected, his wife being a lady-in-waiting for the Queen. An ardent royalist, this was one newsman who wouldn't want to see the royal family dragged through the mud. Which left the then director-general of the BBC, John Burt, in a tricky position. He decided he could only safely tell Marmaduke Hussey about the interview after it was recorded and edited and a few days before the broadcast, at about the same time as the palace found out. So now back to those dodgy tactics Rosamond just mentioned. The first thing I did was go back to what had been written at the time. So some of this story came out in 1996 in the Mail on Sunday. And the story got stuck there. They expected it to be this enormous story, but actually it got followed for a few days and then disappeared. What they had was forged bank statements. What they didn't have was the broader context which we were able to get, which was not only were there forged bank statements, but it was what Princess Diana was told by Martin Bashir in a series of meetings, or particularly one meeting at which her brother was present and kept notes. And that was what we were able to take on. Rosamond discovered that at this meeting in August of 1995, two months before the interview, Bashir apparently made a series of ludicrous and often slanderous claims about members of the royal family and Diana's staff. The notes that Earl Spencer jotted down indicate that Bashir told Diana and her brother absurd stories, including claiming that Prince Edward had AIDS and that the Prince of Wales was having a relationship with the royal nanny, Tiggy Leg Bourke. And no one had ever known what Diana was told in that meeting by Martin Bashir in order to get this interview. And the background to that is that Martin Bashir had first contacted Earl Spencer, and this is in the BBC's FOI documents. FOI documents, the result of Freedom of Information requests, that Rosamond got from the corporation while investigating this story. And what they show is that, yes, Martin Bashir viewed Earl Spencer, Diana's brother, as the gateway to access his sister. He saw him as the gatekeeper, essentially, and the way to get that interview. So to be able to get to Diana, the story goes, Martin Bashir used four bank statements purporting to show that people close to Earl Spencer were being paid to monitor him and his sister. An underhand tactic to gain Spencer's trust and get close to Diana. What he was trying to show with these documents is that Earl Spencer, his staff member, was spying on him and giving that information both to the media but also to the security services, so i.e. MI5. So Earl Spencer thought these statements were real, and then it was discovered that they weren't. How did that discovery come about? 
The person who made them reports to the BBC his concerns. Before the Panorama interview, a freelance graphics designer called Matt Wiesler had received an odd request to mock up some bank statements. He was visited by Martin Bashir late one evening and he's asked to make this up as a bit of a favour. He's a freelancer, so he's not a member of staff at the BBC. And he's asked to make up these statements and to do it overnight. And then obviously the interview plays out and he thinks, well, what was all that about, those statements? I don't really understand what I was making. And he sends them to a member of staff that he knew well and and was friendly with. In fact, he faxes them, which means, of course, that person then is obliged to report them internally at the BBC. The man Matt Vista sends them to is a producer at the BBC called Mark Killick, who in turn alerts his bosses. Then what happens? He's told that all of this is sort of fine and dealt with and to leave it with Steve Hewlett. Essentially, at this stage, only Steve Hewlett appears to be aware of what's happened. Steve Hewlett, who died in 2017, was the editor of Panorama at the time of the Diana interview. We'll come on to what happens next in just a moment after I invite you to subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times to get more great investigations like Rosamond's. If you sign up today, you can get one month free by going to thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Do you remember what it's like being in your 20s? I sometimes look back at that period of my life and laugh just as much as I cringe. If you do the same, then you've got to watch Queenie, the new original series on Hulu. Who is Queenie? Queenie is a 20-something year old living in London. She's facing all the firsts. First major heartbreak, first shitty apartment and soul-sucking job, first therapy session to work through those mommy issues. Can she turn her quarter-life crisis into a revolution? Maybe. Will she make some questionable decisions along the way? Definitely. The new series Queenie is now streaming on Hulu. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So. In 1996, there is an internal inquiry at the BBC. What forces the inquiry, according to the FOI documents, is the revelations in the Mail on Sunday that come out in April 1996, where they have the copies of the fake bank statements and also they have some of what had played out in the months afterwards. So that forces an investigation internally, which is led by two people, Tony Hall, who was then head of news and current affairs, and a woman called Anne Sloman. What do we know now about that investigation? Well, we know that Tony Hall never spoke 
to Matthew Wiesler and that he never spoke to Earl Spencer either. And what we found out was that one person within Panorama went to Steve Hewlett and said to him, look, you could sort out who knew what by just putting in a simple call to Earl Spencer. And of course, the same applies there to Tony Hall. If you'd asked the two sort of crucial people around here, you would have thought they were good people to involve in an investigation. Now, the allegation about that investigation from people at Panorama at the time is that it was a whitewash. And their feeling is that, you know, if you'd wanted to find something, you uh, would have asked a few questions. If you didn't want to find something, then you would have not bothered to ask anything. So we had a source at the time saying the BBC chose not to go to Earl Spencer. You're looking at bank statements that may have been used to secure the biggest scoop in the second half of the 20th century and destabilise the most famous female in the world. The investigation clearly was a whitewash. Anyone who could give them the truth wasn't asked. What conclusion did the inquiry itself draw? I mean, what, what did they actually say? The inquiry, because this was then presented some of this to the Board of Governors, found that Bashir was an honest man, and that's a quote. There had been no question of Bashir trying to mislead or do anything improper. And I should add, and this is really important, that when the Mail on Sunday approached Bashir in 1996 about this story, the BBC claimed that these documents had been used for a separate investigation that got sort of, you know, lots of things don't go anywhere in journalism, that got lost along the way. And Bashir had said that he'd never shown them to anyone. The BBC now claims, because they admit that Earl Spencer saw these documents, which is something they only admitted when we first approached them in October, they say, well, we only looked into whether Princess Diana had seen these documents, which, you know, is something we can't prove because she's not alive anymore. Was it part of their conclusion that they felt that the interview was not actually influenced by these documents? Did they say that? Yes, that's right. So they said that there was a memo from Princess Diana that showed that she gave the interview without being influenced by any documents. Now, there's two things to say about this. The first is that Andrew Morton, the Diana biographer, claimed in one of his books that Princess Diana's friends said yes, she had been shown some documents. Now, obviously, the BBC denies that, and so does Martin Bashir. And the second half of this is that that memo that the BBC has continually relied on, which they're now still relying on, because when we've gone to them, they say, well, there's this memo. They don't have it. They've lost it. They still say it exists, but they don't have it. The memo that Rosamond mentions here is a handwritten note from Princess Diana in which she is supposed to have said that she had not been misled. But this note has now disappeared. And of course, would you not have made a photocopy if you had a letter from Princess Diana, you know? And, and obviously Diana wrote an awful lot of letters, you know. She was brought up in the way where you send a thank you for everything. And it's not implausible that Martin Bashir, with whom she continued to have a good relationship with after the interview, could have asked her to write something. That isn't totally implausible. But that memo is never set out in any of the documents. And actually, the Board of Governors is told about it, but not told exactly what it says. Did the inquiry speak to Martin Bashir? Yes. The suspicion is he, from some people at Panorama, is that he is the only person the inquiry spoke to in 1996. That is the allegation that they make. I'm sure the BBC would deny that. But there's no other, nobody else is mentioned as a possibility of having been spoken to. Now, 
Let's come back to this great contention because it seems to be it's it's actually not material to some of the accusations, but it's material to the background that Diana was only convinced to do the interview by these strange things that uh, was said to her. It's now pretty well documented that she was determined to do a major public interview of this kind and had rehearsed the lines that she had taken. Is it not relatively clear that she was looking for a vehicle for that interview? Absolutely, she wanted to do her side of the story. I think that that bit isn't isn't arguable. It's that probably she would have done it with somebody else. So David Frost, they were friendly. I think he'd probably put in for the interview. Oprah had put in for the interview. Barbara Walters, you know. She, there were loads of people who wanted this interview. And one of the odd things was always, why did she give it to this journalist no one had ever heard of from Panorama? As you understand it, what action is the BBC taking now? Initially, when we first approached the BBC about this story, it kept telling us it was a historic story. And Martin Bashir, they say, is not very well. And so they couldn't contact him. However, since then, the BBC have said they will be conducting a new inquiry into what exactly happened a quarter of a century ago. This weekend, Lord Hall confirmed he would appear before an inquiry into Bashir's conduct, which will also scrutinise what Hall knew and when. They say it will be independent. Tim Davey, the new Director General, started his job in September and I have to say he now faces quite an embarrassing situation where he's got to <laughs> look into his, the behaviour of his predecessor, which is never you know, a particularly nice job. But to be fair, you know, most of these people are out of the BBC now. So from that point of view, at least they're not looking into staff who still work there. And the other thing to add is Martin Bashir was hired back by the BBC in 2016 to become religious affairs correspondent. So he is still a member of BBC staff. And the question will be, does he get to stay on when he recovers from his illness? Of course, Rosamond approached Martin Bashir during her investigation. But he told her he was unwell and she should speak to the BBC. Bashir is signed off work after a major heart operation. And it's now understood he's told colleagues he will retire but is expected to help the inquiry. And what about the graphic designer? He lives in Devon, in quite a remote place with his family. Depending how you look at this, you know, to some people, the big scandal here is the way he was treated because one of the uh, documents we got under Freedom of Information request said that Matt Wiesler will never again work for the BBC. And of course, to some degree, effectively, Bashir was exonerated. But why on earth punish the person who didn't really necessarily understand what they were doing? Now, if it wasn't for the accusations about the BBC, which people think haven't been sufficiently investigated, would this actually matter now? I think... One of the points is, you know, would she have given an interview anyway? And the answer is undoubtedly yes. That's Valentine Lowe again, the Times royal correspondent. But how Martin Bashir went about it, I mean, there was a very interesting piece by Rosa Monkton in the Daily Mail in which she spelt out what she thought was the effect. She noticed a change in her friend in the latter half of 1995, the year of the interview. She became much more paranoid, to be blunt about it. And Rosa Moncton blames that on Martin Bashir 
playing on her insecurities and pouring poison in her ear. So the effect on Diana of what he did, I think, is significant. And I think there's a lot of slightly unsavoury BBC bashing that goes on around this. But it has to be said, this reflects very badly on the BBC. So I think the BBC does have questions to answer about this. How would you compare what was happening with Diana then to the rows we've been having about the royal family in the most recent past, particularly the Meghan and Harry thing? There's no doubt that the Meghan and Harry row is important in terms of the development of the royal family, but I don't think it really holds a candle to what happened with Charles and Diana. Firstly, because Charles is the heir to the throne. So he's the chap who matters. Harry was never going to become king, so a much less significant figure. And the other thing is, there are sort of constitutional issues raised by the Charles and Diana saga. I mean, one of the notable things was that when they announced their separation, the Prime Minister at the time, John Major, got up in the House of Commons and said this breaking up, but there was no reason why Diana when the time came, could not become queen. And there was quite a gasp at that. And that raised all sorts of questions. As it happened, that question would never uh, come to be posed in any real way. I think uh, the Charles and Diana saga was much more significant and dramatic. It was more significant. But when you looked at that story of Charles and Diana from the time they met to the time they divorced, and actually to the time she died and the aftermath... And you look at it and you think, we were all bonkers, weren't we? <laughs> uh, bonkers in what way? Bonkers uh, to believe the fairy tale nonsense we were fed at the beginning? Bonkers to invest so much in this soap opera. Bonkers to... I don't know. Do you, do you not think it kind of said something rather strange about us? Well... <sighs> In a way, we have to be bonkers to invest in the whole thing anyway. It's a very curious thing to have a royal family. What are we believing in? And it's even more curious now because the royal family, increasingly with the younger generation, they go to great lengths to emphasise how normal they are. But the royal family, if it's to continue, it's predicated on them being special and not normal, and not like us. So how you balance the two is, I think, a point of some tension. But this is why we invest so much in it, because people suspend their normal judgment when it comes to the royal family. They, even quite normal, rational people become starstruck in their presence. And that's how they survive. That's how they continue to be our royal family and to be regarded as important and worth having. The BBC has never replayed the Diana Panorama interview since its one and only broadcast in 1995. But in the last few days, it says it has now recovered that original handwritten memo the Princess wrote following the Panorama interview. The broadcaster has stated it will produce it for the independent inquiry. Thank you. 
You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, David Aronovich, and my guests, Valentine Lowe, the Royal Correspondent of the Times, and Rosamond Irwin, the Sunday Times Media and Technology Correspondent. And you can read more of Valentine and Rosamond's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producer today was Will Rowe. The executive producer is Poppy Damon. Sound design was by Carla Patella. And you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Acast. And now we're available on the Times Radio app, along with all the other podcasts from the Times. To download the app, search for Times Radio on your app store. See you again soon. Subscribe today and get one month free at thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like... You know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, (laughs) you, you were different. Like you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.